So we all know about the Bible, but how much do we know about the Bible? And it's an important question that we've been tackling over the last few weeks because um, one of the leading reasons that people walk away or begin to question their faith um, as they get older is because they never progress past the idea of what the Bible was presented to them as as a child. Um, And, you know, as a child, there's some pretty um, interesting stories that we sanitize quite a bit and put in, you know, some little cartoon character book forms and say, you know, this is some things. And as you grow up, those stories and how they worked and how you think God worked based on them doesn't really play out too much um, in life. So the last few weeks we've been talking about, um, I mean, we started out the first week of the series talking about why we needed to get into the Bible and how it was good for you. Then the next week, if you've ever been like really confused by how the Bible is constructed, um, uh, the order of everything as you try and if you've ever tried to start at the beginning and read all the way through and you're like, um, I don't know where the storyline is here. It seems like we already talked about this. This part makes no sense and I can't get past it without falling asleep. Um, I would definitely encourage you to go back and listen to part two of this series and grab, grab before you do grab, there's a card sitting on the back, uh, get involved table back there that lays out the entire diagram of how it's put together and how you can read it to keep the storyline and to see other things that are added into the actual storyline. And so that was great. And then last week, it was my intent um, to talk about the significance, um, the significance of the, of the Old Testament. And um, I did not make it past Genesis 1 one in the beginning. And so we, we spent a whole last week last week, um, which I think was pretty good um, because Kate told me it was good. <laughs> and so when she tells me it's good, I'm like, oh man, I must have I hit it, I guess. So if you weren't here last week, you missed a good one. Um, go back and listen to it. So here, here's where we're going. Just to let you know for the rest of the series, here's the structure. So I got one verse of the Old Testament last week. Today, we're getting all the rest of the verses. So yes, all of them. Um, Next week, we're going to talk about the New Testament. And then the week after that, I'm going to give you some extremely practical ways to actually go about reading the Bible because opening it up and getting started can be ridiculously uh, intimidating. Um, So as we started talking about last week, the story of the Bible actually starts with Jesus. It doesn't start with Genesis and the creation story and all that. It actually starts with Jesus because if there had been no resurrection of the person of Jesus, um, we would have no Bible. There would have been no reason to document his life. There would have been no reason for any of his followers to sacrifice their life to get the message out of the first century. Um, There would have been no reason to try and spread word about him because if there was no resurrection, he was just a dude who claimed some pretty crazy stuff who was from a pretty nowhere town. And that would have been the extent of it. And there would have been no Bible. But eventually, Paul, who we're going to talk about next week, and a few others, began to travel around the Mediterranean Rim after the resurrection and began to spread this message and began to start planting these churches. Um, But none of that, none of that and all that follows would have happened without Jesus. Now, the Gentiles, 
Um, as they started getting interested, the Gentiles, which is anybody who's not Jewish, so most of us, the Gentiles, as they started getting interested in Jesus, who was a Jew, um, they also became enamored with the Jewish scriptures, right? And as they, they embraced the Jewish scriptures or what we call the Old Testament, um, what the Jewish people call the law and the prophets, um, they embraced them as their own scriptures. And while they were interested in the Jewish text, they were not interested in the Jewish religion, and here's why. Um, because historically speaking, there were a whole lot of things going on at the time when all this was starting to take place. Um, the Jewish temple had been destroyed. Um, Rome had come in and just leveled the entire thing. And the priests and the rabbis and the scholars of the time, they were trying to figure out how are we going to continue to practice our faith without the temple? Because it all hinged around the temple. It was the entire system. And in that area in that time, as they were trying to figure out, rabbinic Judaism was born. The second thing that was going on at the time was that the Jews would periodically side with the Romans against the Christians. Because as the Jewish leaders and the, the, the rabbis and the priests, as they would, as they would look at this, this Christianity thing, they didn't really, at first they didn't want to admit that it was a rivalry because a rivalry kind of implies oh, there's kind of an equality and it could go either way, right? One-sided rivalries don't stay rivalries for very long. But they would look at this and they would be like, uh, they, they would be like, oh my goodness, you, you guys are a knockoff religion. You've stolen our scriptures. You're doing damage to us as far as how Rome views us and the things that are going on um, with that. So they had a tendency from time to time to side with Rome to actively put an end to the spread of Christianity. The third thing is, is that the Gentiles had no desire to be Jewish because anybody looking from the outside in to the Jewish culture, I mean, they've found it kind of odd. Like, well, they, they refuse to work on one day during the week, there, there's some things that they just won't eat ever. That's kind of strange. They won't come over to your house when you invite them. They won't invite you to theirs. The, you know, they won't, they won't let you, you know, marry or date any daughters or sons. They were just extremely, it was difficult to keep all of their rules. None of them could do it, but they tried. But outsiders looking in didn't even want to try. They looked at that list of rules and everything that Jewish people did. And they're like, no, 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 no. We, we are not interested in that. So consequently, Christians took the Jewish book, took their scriptures, but did not take their religion. And their interest, their interest in the book, um, it, it was not really historical or cultural. Their interest in the Jewish scriptures was Christological. That might be a new word for all of you because I think I may have made it up. But basically, they went into the Hebrew scriptures specifically looking for Christ. And guess what? They found him everywhere. They found him in obvious places where he was. They found him in places where he wasn't even actually. I mean, everywhere they looked, they found Jesus, 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 Jesus. And the Jewish leaders were absolutely appalled that these non-Jewish people who couldn't even speak or read Hebrew had taken their text and had damaged them and degraded them as far as their reputation goes, as far as what they mean. But the Gentiles, 
The Gentiles were like, no, 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 no. We're gonna take your scriptures. We're gonna take your text, but we are going to reject your interpretation of them. Because guess what, guys? You missed your own Messiah. And so because you missed something so obvious, we're not interested in any of your interpretations that you have of your own scriptures. And so what happened was this, is that the Christians took the Jewish text and made them a part of their own religion. But when they did this, when they did this, they downplayed or ignored or just didn't teach the absolutely fabulous, gritty, epic history of the Jewish people. They said, yeah, we're gonna take it for the Jesus part, but all the rest of that, we're just kind of gonna, uh, we're not gonna pay attention to that. And they didn't because the thing is, is that the Old Testament chronicles God's redemptive sequential activity throughout history. And that's a big deal. And I'll tell you, the, the early church, as they began to spread, there were some really great things, but not paying attention to that part was a detriment. And there are things that we still kind of suffer from because of it. So in Genesis, we looked last week, God shows up on the scene as creator and he shows up in the beginning, but very quickly he takes off the creator hat and he puts on, he puts on the founder hat because he's gonna found a nation that will eventually bring redemption to the world. And through a man with no children named Abraham, a nation, wait, a man named Abraham with no children, not that none of his children were not named Abraham. <laughs> So through a man named Abraham who had no children, he says, I am going to bring forth a family. And through that family, I'm going to bring forth a nation that is going to have a multi-generational purpose. Like, I'm not just gonna do something with you, Abraham. This is gonna go on and on and on. And it was a nation that would eventually become a slave to a superpower. As the, as the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, to a Pharaoh who declared himself to be related to the gods. So then it goes from, you know, Abraham, we developed this, now we're under slavery. And all of a sudden there's this guy named Moses. And God's like, all right, Moses, it's your turn. You're next on the scene. So Moses goes in to Egypt and addresses Pharaoh with the, with, uh, with the power of God's demonstrations behind him. And he declares, you are to let my people go. You're to do it. And so God spoke to Pharaoh in the only way that Pharaoh would be able to hear him. The only way. And that was through violence and through power. Now, this is important because we're going to come around to it by the time we get to the end. But one of the issues that people have with the Old Testament is the way that God seems to behave in the Old Testament. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of flexing of power and will. There's a lot of death. And so a lot of people look at the Old Testament and they're like, oh my goodness, whatever that God was, I don't think I'm down with that. New Testament, I can handle that New Testament, God. He's not, we're talking about love and, you know, father and we can be his children and, you know, all of that. I've got that, but that Old Testament, God, hmm, I don't know about all that. 
But when God shows up to Pharaoh, he shows up in the only way that Pharaoh will hear, which is through violence and power. And so as the Israelites are fleeing, fleeing Egypt, they basically plunder the place. And they leave and the Israelites, you know, financially, they're pretty good with all the stuff that they're taking out of Egypt. And most of the Egyptian people are glad to see the Hebrew people leave. They aren't really crying about it. Eventually, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, which is where God makes his covenant with the, uh, with the Hebrew people. And this is, where, this is where Moses comes down from the mountain. And we like to see him carrying, you know, the 10 commandments on tablets. He didn't come down with 10 commandments. He came down with over 600 commands and laws. And basically God was saying, all right, I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people. And I have a very specific plan for you. And as long as you keep the rules and the laws, things are gonna be great. If you can do that, things are gonna be great. And I'm gonna give you this land and it's gonna be great. And if you obey me, everything's good. But if you disobey me, I am going to have to punish you. And if you embrace surrounding nations, if you take on the customs and the culture of surrounding nations, if you get into the polytheisms of surrounding nations, I am going to give you over as captives to those nations to be ruled. That's the deal. And when you repent, I will bring you back and you will be free again. And so this covenant that God makes with the, with the uh, Hebrew people at Mount Sinai, it, it, it's conditional in the sense that they had to obey, but it's unconditional in the sense that he would always be there and they would always be his people. And all they would ever have to do to come back would be to turn in his direction. And so all of this and all of the rules that they had to follow, all outlined when Moses comes down with the 600 rules and laws. Now, I, I wanna talk about those for just a minute because this is, this is kind of a big deal, this, this ancient covenant, because critics and skeptics from the very beginning have kind of taken issue with, with the rules that Moses brought down, with the covenant and what that, what that meant. Um, there's a guy named, there, there's a whole group of guys that, that they call the, the new atheists. Um, Richard Dawkins is in there. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is one of those guys. And they've like done a lot of writing fairly recently. Well, some of them have died now, but they've done doing a lot of writing. And, and one of the guys, Richard Dawkins, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. And there was a couple years ago, I did a series where I had read that whole book and we talked about that. Um, but he wrote, he wrote The God Delusion and, and he says this, which, which is probably a pretty good snapshot uh, of the angst that people have towards kind of the Old Testament, that covenant and the way God behaves and whatnot. And you may have heard these. And some of these things, as you've read through the Bible, may have caused you to take pause and wonder about how they play in. And mm, is that really God? Because maybe while we were young and singing the B-I-B-L-E, you know, and as we start growing up, all of a sudden somebody comes along and starts showing you some of the verses in the B-I-B-L-E and saying, what about this one? What about this? This seems really terrible. How can you even pretend to defend and stand with that? How, how can you do that? Specifically, there's some troublesome verses in the Old Testament. And you thought, man, what kind of God would say these things? What kind of God would do these things? What kind of covenant is this? He, here's, what, here's what Dawkins writes. 
He says, Judaism, which is originally a tribal cult of a single fiercely unpleasant God who was morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions, with the smell of charred flesh. And he goes on and on and on and on. I mean, just ripping it apart. Now, a lot of us would read that and be like, I mean, yeah, it's kind of got a point. Why is God so obsessed with all those things? What was up with all the weird rules? Why, why, why so much death and bloodshed? What was going on there? Why would anybody take that serious? And why would anybody follow that? which is why I want to talk about this for a minute because this is so vital to understand because when you take that approach and you take that view and you write those things, that is an absolutely wrong understanding of what the covenant and the the laws and the understandings of the Hebrew scripture are. So I, I want to give you two examples of where this is kind of faulty thinking in approaching the Old Testament. And God's covenant with the ancient Hebrews that way. The first is in um, Leviticus chapter 18. And the Leviticus is the, is the book where the majority of the law is found. If you want to go through and see all the things they had to do, that's the book, right? Um, that's it. That, this is the one, you know, where if you've ever started to try and read the Bible from front to back, you get to, you read through Genesis. There's some pretty fantastical stories in Genesis. Genesis is entertaining. You get to ep- uh, Exodus, it's just kind of epic. I mean, they're, you know, we're leaving, we're fleeing, God's, you know, establishing things and freeing us and doing all these things. It's, it's kind of epic. So you get Genesis, Exodus, it's pretty good. Um, Leviticus, you're just like, oh, wait, what? And then you get to Numbers and you're like, what, what? Like, I don't even know what this story is about anymore. What are we talking about? But Leviticus is that one, and it's really hard to stay awake through Leviticus. I mean, if, you, you know, if you're not into taking Ambien for sleeping, try Leviticus. I'm going to be honest with you. Late at night, you know, you try and work through those old covenant laws. Whew, those eyelids get a little bit heavy. But it's the detailed covenant God had with Israel. And you get to chapter 18 in Leviticus. And you will find 19 laws or prohibitions that deal with sexuality. 19 of them, right? And and if that was all that you heard, you would say, look, see, there's my point. There, that's why I'm not into that. There's God just trying to get into my private life, get into my bedroom. I don't want anything to do with this. But what's fascinating is this, is that of the 19 restrictions that God put into the Jewish law, um, of the 19, all 19 were practiced both in Egypt and in Canaan, which was practically the entire world surrounding the Jewish people. And so there are these things that were practiced all around and God says, I don't want you to be a part of those things. He says, I want you to be different. But here's what's fascinating. You fast forward, which those were 3,500 years ago. God said, we don't need to be doing these things. Fast forward to today and in every developed nation and in a whole lot of developing nations, 17 out of the 19 things that God says, I don't want you to be a part of, 17 are either illegal or frowned upon. 
The point being is that the Hebrew people and the law that God gave them was way, way, way ahead of its time as far as how people viewed things. And it would take centuries and centuries for the nations to look at Israel and see how they were living and the things that were coming out of their lifestyle and go, oh, that's the way to go. Our way is destructive. The way they're doing it, that's the way to go. Now, here's the theme of those laws. I'm gonna give you one verse and it's gonna be kind of the theme of those 19 things. You can get an idea of what I'm talking about. Leviticus 18, verse six. No one is to approach any close family relative to have sexual relations, which sounds pretty reasonable to me, right? I'm sure it sounds pretty reasonable to you, but it did not seem reasonable to the ancient Egyptians. And it did not seem reasonable to the ancient Canaanites and the other surrounding nations. In fact, here's how far ahead of their time the Israelites were when it came to this idea. If you fast forward 1500 years for when these laws were given, you find yourself in the time of Jesus, right? 1500 years. And Roman civilization has gradually and slowly begun to embrace these specific rules around this topic. But over in Egypt, 1500 years after God said, Israelites, you stop doing it. Over in Egypt, the monarchs were still marrying their siblings, that's how long it went on. That's how far ahead of the curve the Israelites were. And it would take several more generations for that to die out in Egypt. And my point is this, is that you can't just fly by the Sinai covenant that God made with the Hebrew people. You can't just fly by it and be like, oh, that's so antiquated and it's so old fashioned and it's so repressive and it's so, ah. Uh. Because when you look at it, it was so far ahead of its time for the culture that it was in. And any good, any good historian will tell you, you can't go back to ancient times and pull something out of it and begin to judge it by modern ideas and it be any good at all. They're all gonna fail. It's all gonna fail. The only way that you can evaluate these things is in context and where was it going? And God always, 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 starting from the beginning all the way to now, God always accommodates us where we're at. And what I mean is this, is that if you have a five-year-old that asks, where do babies come from? The answer that you give a five-year-old is gonna be different than the answer that you give your 16-year-old when you're having some kind of talk. I clearly don't know when the talk is supposed to happen. I think 16's too late. <laughs> but the answers are different. And the answer is gonna be completely different if you're talking to a medical student in school. Completely different. But nobody's lying. All of the answers are right, but you're taking a person where they are and progressing from there to get them somewhere. You can't start a five-year-old with the medical school definition and explanation of where babies come from. And this is essentially what the covenant that God made with the Israelite people did. We look back on it now and we're like, oh, that step forward is kind of a five-year-old step. But God's like, that's where they were. 
I had to get them from here and we had to begin to progress. And so the Sinai Covenant, we see God accommodating to where people were in ancient culture. And even with that taken into account, the covenant was extremely advanced. And it strikes us sometimes as unsophisticated and as barbaric, but it wasn't. In fact, it was superior in every single way compared to every other nation around it. And as you go through the protections that it afforded the most vulnerable people, that the protections that they did not have at the time was revolutionary. Women, servants, foreigners, um, children, all did better in Israel than those same people did in every nation around them. Why? Because of what I said last week, the Hebrews from the very beginning believed in the singular God and mankind was created in the image of that God. And the Hebrew people did not worship nature, did not worship creation. They saw themselves as the pinnacle of creation, which was different from every other religion. And they were set apart and it would take centuries for the rest of the world to catch up. In fact, there are parts of the world today that had still not caught up to what God instructed the Israelites to do 3,500 years ago. So back to, back to the storyline. After the Sinai covenant, once Israel was a nation state, they, against God's wishes, looked around to the other nations around them that all had kings and says, we want king. We want a king. And God's like, no, I want you to look to me as your king. God had set it up that he would be the king and that judges would help rule the people. But they're like, no, 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 no. We, we want a king. And so God gave them kings. And Israel had a whole line of kings and most of them were complete disasters because such is the nature of a person who is given all power. And so the, the Israelite kings, they raised taxes. Boo, nobody likes taxes. They raised armies, which cost money, which meant more. There you go. Boo, more taxes. And they went to war and they had multiple wives, which is never good. Listen, anytime you're in a situation where you have a favorite wife, things are not gonna go good in your life. It's just not. That's not, that's not how it's gonna go. But with their third king that they had, with the third king, Israel got something that all of the other surrounding nations already had. And over and over and over again, we find Israel looking around to the other nations and they're like, oh, we want that. We wanna do that. We wanna do that. Um, and so here's what they did. They got a temple, which would eventually become the center of their religion and their worship. But they got a temple, but theirs was different from the temples of the other nations. And it wasn't different like by, um, you know, it wasn't different from uh, structure and design and, you know, look different. It wasn't different like that. It was similar to the other temples like that, but theirs was missing something that all the other temples had. Because all of the other temples in the holiest place had an image, an idol of the God that they worshiped. But part of the covenant that God had made with the Israelites was, listen, no image is going to be able to contain my grandeur, to, con to you know, be able to, you, you can't narrow me down to an image. And by the way, unlike the other gods that are in the temples, I don't live in the temple. 
I'm a mobile God. Interesting piece of history. Around 63 uh, BC, Pompey had a couple skirmishes with with the Israelites. And he annexed Judea and Galilee into the Roman Empire. And when he did so, he was fascinated to finally see this Jewish God who was this troublemaker God who was this God that refused to become a part of the pantheon of gods that, that the Romans worshiped. And so he goes into the temple when they're conquered and he brushes right by the priests who are in the outer court area. And he goes through the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple because he wanted to see this God. And when he goes in, there's a table and some dishes, a little bit of gold over in the corner no God. And he was so bothered by it that he just turned and left it all and left the temple and did not return to the temple again. And why was he so disgusted? Because who ever heard of a God that didn't have an image? It was crazy. It was crazy. And God was probably thinking, he's like, well, you know, you're getting ready to hear from this God who doesn't have an image. So back to the story, we got Abraham, we got Moses, we have Sinai, we have the covenant, we have kings, we have the temple. See, we're covering a lot, you didn't realize it, but we've covered a lot of, this is what's going on. We got kings and we we got the temple. And since the kings would always be misbehaving, God would have prophets. And he would send the prophets to the kings who weren't doing the right things to kind of be like, you need to repent, you need to shape up, you need to start doing things better. Now, when you read the Old Testament, a large number of the texts that are in the Old Testament are kind of the writings and the rants and the warnings of these prophets. And when they were writing these things, they were writing to very specific events in history that were happening with the Israelite people. But every once in a while, the prophets would kind of look beyond their immediate context and what was going on. And they would kind of look into the future in a day when God would do something through the nation of Israel for the entire world. And then they would write down this stuff. And one of the most fascinating illustrations of this is found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was writing about 600 years before Jesus. And most of his writings, the people of the day could read them and be like, oh, he's talking about this very specific event. We know exactly what this means. But there's one portion that Isaiah wrote that was mystery to the Jewish leaders. They were like, what in the world is he talking about? because he talks about a servant whose suffering would benefit not only the nation, but the entire world. And the idea of a person going under this suffering, this was completely contrary to the temple system. It was their structure of worship was not people suffering. So here's a few verses out of Isaiah 53 that he writes. He says, he was despised and rejected by mankind. And all of the original audience was asking the question, who is he? Who are they talking about? It says, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And so they're like, so a person paid the price for our iniquities? I mean, that's what the animals are for in the temple system. What is a person doing? He keeps going. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. All. And again, they're like, who is him? And that's not how any of this works. What in the world is Isaiah talking about? He says, for he was cut off from the land of the living. And they're like, so he dies? Okay. 
For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. And he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So like, oh, so not only does this guy die, he's buried. But after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And they're sitting there reading that like, wait, that makes it sound like he's gonna come back to life. Like Isaiah, what in the world are you talking about? He keeps going. By his knowledge, my righteous servants will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Now listen, this chapter in Isaiah does not get attention in Jewish teachings. Like there's certain things in the Bible um, that nearly every single Christian just kind of skips over and doesn't mention and doesn't want to acknowledge that it's there because all of a sudden you're going to have a whole lot of things to try and grapple with and explain and reason and maybe doubt what it is that you think and feel about God. This is one of those passages for the Jewish people. Most synagogues act as if this chapter is not even in Isaiah. And, and, if, you, and if you go and if you ask them, who is this talking about? They won't give an answer. Many of them will say, well, it sounds like it's talking about Jesus. And you would say, yes. To which they would follow up with, but we don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. And that's gonna be about the extent of that conversation. Now, the point is this, is that the story of the Hebrew people is absolutely epic. And a Hebrew prophet foretold of events in extraordinary detail that would take place 600 years later. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see the Jewish people were a divine means to a divine end. And being a means makes you meaningful by default. And if you want to have a meaningful life, you can look at the story of the Jewish people and then you can become a means to an end that is bigger than yourself. That is the quickest way to have a meaningful life. And the story of the ancient Hebrews is a fascinating one. And God waded into the fray and he played by the rules of the kingdoms of the world in order to introduce a higher kingdom. And to sand off the rough edges of the Old Testament that are uncomfortable for us, to get rid of those things that, that, you know, I don't like the way that God acts there. I don't like his behavior. I don't like the things he's doing. To do that is to miss the absolute mess that he waded into in order to see the redemption story played out to its end on a bloody cross. It's incredible and you can't separate them because without it, the next part of the story could not be possible. It couldn't be possible. And without it, you and I would not be here together today because the Old Testament is not just a part of the Bible we can skip past or say, oh, that doesn't matter anymore. I'm not gonna pay any attention to that. The Old Testament is foundational to what would come next. Because the Old Testament is the story of God and his people, which leads directly to the story of Jesus and redemption 
which leads directly to the story of us and God. And so you owe it to yourself to read it. And there's going to be parts of it that might be hard for you to get through. There's going to be parts of it that you're going to read and you're going to be like, holy cow, this is the most amazing thing I've ever read. I didn't know this was in the Bible. There's going to be parts of it you read and you're going to understand why Jewish boys were not allowed to read it until they were 16 years old. There's parts you're going to read and you're going to blush because even just reading the words in your head, you're going to be like, oh my goodness, this is dirty. It's in there. But it's an incredible story. And to ignore it because some of it is uncomfortable is to do a disservice to both it and you. You owe it to yourself because it's the foundation for where we get to next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just did a really terrible job of jamming thousands of years into 40 minutes. Well, Lord, I, I pray that, God, you ignite something inside of us. Ignite a, a, a desire to go back and discover the absolute incredible story of you injecting yourself into mankind for the purpose of restoration. Lord, let us understand the weight of some of the things that happened and had to happen for us to be able to get to the point where we're at today. But God, most of all, I pray that you ignite a love for the scriptures within us because they are absolutely amazing. The way that you work, the way that it fits together, the way that we got it, it's all just so absolutely incredible. And Lord, I pray that we as a church can find a love for the scriptures because they will bring us closer to you. Lord, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace. And I pray you're with us till we can be back together again. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being out. Look forward to next week as we move on to the next part of the story.